Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. There's lots to see and do in New York City, so much that it's hard to see and do it all. So we here at Cityscape decided to bring some of the city's many exhibitions to you. You can worry about your suggested donation later. Cityscape goes museum hopping. Just follow the guy with the red umbrella and he won't get lost. We're on our way. My name is Jennifer McGregor. I'm the visual arts curator at Wave Hill. This exhibit is Transplant Transculture and it brings together artists from Asia and South America and the Caribbean who are doing artwork that connects to their homeland. It's something that we noticed a lot in artists' work, that they were using plants in this way. And for instance, we're starting out here in the foyer with Raymond Sa's work, and he's a fabulous artist who has really transformed the entranceway with a graffiti-like kind of inspired mural that is based on his family's Cuban experience of coming here and living in Miami and that connection they felt to the plants of their homeland. So the artists were commissioned to do this work? Some of the artists were. We have four projects that were made especially for the space, and the rest of the work is all work that the artists had done already. Now we're in the, in the um, North Gallery, and we have a fabulous piece by Nancy Friedemann, who's an artist who's from Columbia, and this piece is made especially for the space. And it's really interesting to see that how it's changed. When you look out the window now, you see the river and you see the foliage, and that's one of the great things about artists being able to work at Wave Hill is they can work in a natural environment and you can see this artwork, this kind of mural that she's made in relationship to the changing scenery around us. This particular plant that she has used, the Passiflora mixta, is a, a plant that we have here at Wave Hill. It's not exactly the same species, but it's one that grows in Colombia and that was discovered there. And other types of species grow all over, so we have a, an example here, although at this time it's probably not kind of dried up and withered, so you can't see it as well as when the exhibit started. As we turn around here and look on this wall, whose work is this? Um, this is an artist who's um, originally from China, Zhang Hongtu, and he uses both Western and Eastern approaches to art making. So he's painting in an expressionist style. It's after Monet, and it's a Chinese landscape that's painted like it was an expressionist painting. And this is a triptych which has never been shown together before, and it has the dawn, the middle of the day, and the evening represented. If I turn my attention to this wall, that looks like, to me, a silver-plated plantain? Exactly, that's what it is, and it's a pendant. And it's by Miguel Luciano, who is an artist who's um, originally from Puerto Rico. The significance of the plantain in the culture is enormous. Yes, it's enormous, and actually we have three artists that are dealing with, with that in this exhibit. I noticed that in this other room, video is incorporated. Yes. Um, let, should we go over to the other room? And, and um, we have a fabulous video by, um, two videos actually, by um, Nicolas Dumit Estevez. And he's actually, he's a Bronx artist. This is a, is a series of work that he did as performances that are using the plantain. In this one, he's preparing the plantain, and he's dressed up as a woman with these fabulous um, nails, 
and giving instruction on how to cook the plantain and saw this as a way of introducing this important food staple and using that as a cultural bridge. The following recipe is called tostones. Tostones, and it uses green plantain. In order to prepare tostones, you will need an aluminum or iron frying pan. And what is this straw-like structure in the room? This is by Sandra Bell, who is an artist from Trinidad originally. She comes from generations of um, carnival costume makers, and she made Jack in the Green for us here at Wave Hill. And Jack in the Green's a character that comes from, originally from a kind of Celtic tradition, but was introduced to the um, Jamaica and Tr Trinidad by the British. <laughs> I'm really drawn to this back room here, number one, because of the light, but number two, because of what's hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, this is a piece by Ming Fei, who is an artist also originally from China, and he has lived here for many years and makes these really fabulous plant-inspired, all of his work is plant-inspired, and these are called monkey pots, and they're based on, on nuts that are sort of like cashew nuts and he was interested in how they spread through colonization all around the world. So plants that originated in, in South America, he found in China as um, a child growing up. And he's particularly interested in kind of the origin of the name monkey pots because the monkeys, the primates, would try to open them up and in their sort of desire to open these nuts up and get the luscious fruit in, inside, they would get their heads caught in the nut. And so. He's interested in the different layers of associations, and what he's made are these kind of outsized, really fabulous hanging nuts and branches, nothing of which is natural. It's all made out of different manufactured materials, and people look at it and they think, are those branches? But it's actually paper pulp, and this is a piece that's really changed. As you look out the window, you can see, again, the beautiful foliage that's still sort of hanging onto the trees. And when we started the show, it was lush green, kind of September weather, and when you come to Wave Hill, you can really experience art and nature um, together. Let me ask you this, because you work around plants and flowers all the time. How has this exhibit changed the way that you look at plants? It makes me think about the plants where I grew up and how I connected to those plants, even though it was in Massachusetts, so it's not as far away as Cuba, and it's not that different a climate. But I realize in talking to all of these artists how their experiences of nature and childhood were so important to them. And I realize how important that is to me and working as a curator. Jennifer, thanks so much for showing us around. Thanks, George. Hope to see you back here soon. Jennifer McGregor is the visual arts curator at Wave Hill. Transplant, Transculture runs through December 10th. One of the more remarkable exhibits on display these days is on the fifth floor of the Brooklyn Museum. There you'll find a nine-foot-tall naked man sitting in a chair or a two-foot-long sculpture of an embracing couple. These hyper-realistic, oddly proportioned works are the creation of Ron Muick, who uses silicone and fiberglass to render bodies in such detail that you're sure they could spring to life at any moment. We recently traveled to the Brooklyn Museum and spoke with some visitors to get their reaction to Muick sculptures. Joel Seidenstein from Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, I taught at the Bronx High School of Science, and we came down to see this in the Ann Leibowitz uh, exhibit. My name is Phil Rockefeller from New City, New York, and uh, again, we're old colleagues together from Bronx Science, and we came down to see this. The realism is amazing. You think they would just jump out at you. 
I was startled. I was staring at that and watching it for a while and seeing if they're going to move or something. It seems so realistic. I would agree. It is very realistic, but it, it, it's not a warm, inviting feeling you get looking at the sculpture. I don't know. It, it draws you in. It's hard not to look at it, but at the same time, uh, uh, I don't think you come away with a warm type feeling. So I guess that's the point of it. Yeah. Oh, and the scale was amazing. Just the scale of them, the tiny little creatures and then these, these giants. It was just, it's amazing how this guy put this together. Well, I thought that, I, I was amazed at that big guy in the corner. I thought it was gonna, yeah. he's gonna reach out and grab you, the way he had this look on his face. And again, the, the realism is astounding. It, it, it was just worth the price of admission just to come and see that guy. <laughs> My name is John, I'm a security guard. Everybody wants to touch it. You know, they know they can't, but it's a normal, to me, it's a normal reaction to want to just touch it to see what it's made out of. Even though they can't, we have to tell them, no, you can't touch it. Judith Rosenberg, I'm from Austin, Texas, but I lived in Brooklyn for 12 years, and I'm homesick. I had a very strong first reaction to the baby downstairs, um, you know, like maybe uh, upscaled, uh, 20 foot long newborn baby. Um, and I felt a attacked really by uh, the way the artist increased the scale and made this kind of aggressive presentation of uh, a newborn baby, which we, which is you know is is not conventionally a thing of beauty, but um, magnified in that way is is really scary and ugly. I mean, I, I tend to feel exploited about by the uh, focus on the body without the spirit. I feel like a lot of artists do that. But I, I think that he's saying something that's important. Those were visitors to the Ron Muick exhibit on display at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. The exhibit runs through the beginning of February. Nakedness might be on display in Brooklyn, but the Fashion Institute of Technology is all about clothes. The museum at FIT is now featuring an exhibit called Love and War, the Weaponized Woman. It looks at the influence of armor and other military styles on fashion. I spoke to the museum's director and chief curator, Dr. Valerie Steele. The idea was to look at a very important theme in contemporary fashion. It may seem that Joan of Arc is an unlikely fashion icon. But it seemed to me for the last couple of years that designers more and more were channeling the spirit of warrior women. So I began to research this, and I was gratified to see that, in fact, as time went on, more and more designers were overtly referencing her and the idea of being sort of tough, chic in fashion. So, for example, I've been working on this show for a year and a half, and last spring, Mucha Prada said, I'm tired of all this passive, sweet femininity. She said, we women need to show some strength. Give me an example of what some of these outfits look like. Well, the exhibition's divided into several parts. One really important theme was the idea of the hard body. Increasingly, people no longer think, oh, men are strong and women are pretty, but rather both men and women are trying to look strong and sexually attractive. And as clothing has become more body-revealing, uh, the hard body underneath serves a very important function. So it's not just that people are wearing harder materials like leather or, in some cases, metal or metal-look clothes, but also that the body itself has become a component in fashion. So metal doesn't have to be included in any particular outfit in order to show this kind of strength. 
Absolutely. We don't need to see a metal armored body, but armor is a, a kind of beautiful metaphor for the hard body. We can see it in leather garments, and frankly, even in things which are made of wool or silk, if the way it's constructed references the idea of a hard body or armor, both a medieval armor or samurai armor. Then, too, we have a small section which is inspired by the, the sort of fashionization of military uniforms because things like the trench coat have been so important or the idea of a kind of officer chic that's very restrained, upper class, in control, that this, I think, is in a way even more important for women uh, than it is for men because you have to sort of present this image of yourself as being, uh, in a sense, powerful, able to take on, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. What about the influence of camouflage? We have a few pieces which show the influence of camouflage. A spectacular haute couture ball gown by Jean-Paul Gaultier, which forms the war component of our sort of lesbian pedant. We also have a camouflage evening gown by John Galliano, which is then decorated with bright orange sort of emergency tape, thus conflicting completely with the idea of camouflage. Uh, camouflage has now become not only a symbol of sort of masculine heroic strength, but also a kind of just a fashion pattern like tartan or, or leopard print that is just used in fashion. I know that this exhibit goes beyond, though, chain mail, camouflage, body armor. It also touches on lingerie, and it helps to show that dialogue between steel and silk. The concept between focusing on a dialogue between silk and steel, between armor and underwear, was to use the two components uh, in a sense as metaphors of what they stood for, armor being like the hard, powerful exoskeleton, and lingerie, the soft, vulnerable, naked skin. And yet they can flip because the, the very fact that armor is protective implies that you are vulnerable underneath. And the exposure of the skin of lingerie can be sexually aggressive, can be very threatening as well. So uh, it's not that I'm saying, oh, women are running around in, you know, brassieres with sort of metal chain mail over that, but rather that the intimacy and vulnerability that uh, is represented by lingerie is an essential component of contemporary fashion along with the symbolism of authority and, and masculine power. Dr. Steele, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Dr. Valerie Steele is the director and chief curator of the museum at FIT. Love and War, the Weaponized Woman, is on display through December 16th. Some people see New York as a form of camouflage, a place where you can go about your business hardly noticed. But others come to the city in search of recognition. An exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York features more than 100 photographs of ambitious New Yorkers in the pages of Look, one of the 20th century's most influential pictorial magazines. My name is Tom Mellons, and I'm curator of special exhibitions at the Museum of the City of New York. My name is Donald Olbrecht, and I'm curator of architecture and design at the Museum of the City of New York. The Museum of the City of New York has a wonderful photographic collection, and one of the 
Jewels in the Crown is a collection of over 200,000 images that were given by Look Magazine, covering all of their New York assignments between 1938 and 1961. And the photographs are not necessarily uh, exhibition or publication-ready prints, but rather they exist uh, primarily in contact sheets and negatives and some smaller prints. And they're really just a wonderful record of the city during that time period, a, a period of enormous change and growth for the city. One of our favorite uh, essays that has uh, been written about New York was a piece that E.B. White uh, wrote in 1949. It was published in uh, Holiday Magazine, a special issue on New York. And the last line of the first paragraph is, no one should come to New York to live unless he is willing to be lucky. So Donald and I took that as an organizing principle for an exhibition. The vastness of the collection required that we find some handle. And we did notice that many, many of the photographs that presented New York to the country in Life in Look magazine related to this idea of the dreamers. We then decided to come up with a group of different types of people. There are the promoters, there are the overnight sensations who, as they always say, were overnight sensations who took them 20 years to get there. There were the dancers, there were the beauties, who are the people who are not only themselves beautiful, but the handlers, the beautifiers, in a sense. So we came up with about eight or nine different groups of people who defined this term of the dreamers and people who are ambitious, and then selected a group of photographs from those. The centerpiece of the show, though, is the work of Stanley Kubrick, who from 1945 until the early 1950s was a staff photographer at Look Magazine. He was only 17 or 18 years old. He was born in 1938, and he got a job with Look Magazine by photographing a newsstand the day after Franklin Roosevelt died in office. He sent it into Look Magazine, and they hired him, and he was a staff photographer for there. And he, Kubrick's photographs are wonderful, and of course it's difficult to look at them without knowing what Stanley Kubrick becomes. In other words, uh, one can't help but look at these photographs and say how cinematographic they are. But even without knowing uh, what becomes of Stanley Kubrick, I think that they're very compelling photographs where... Uh, he has a, a wonderful sense of composition. He has a wonderful sense of drama. Uh, he's interested in these people as individuals, but he's also interested in them as archetypes, particularly in terms of male and female uh, roles uh, played by individuals in society. They have a very strong narrative as well as formal content. I would imagine you each have your own personal favorites. One shoot that we've always really loved are photographs of an, an anonymous woman who is a bra model for the Peter Pan Brazier Company. And she has agreed to uh, be a live model for a hand-painted billboard that's being done at the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. And what's fascinating about it is not only the look on her face as she's being hand-painted, but also the photographers at Look have also captured the fact that this has become a major kind of urban event, and you have people on the street looking up. You have photographs of nearby skyscrapers and people looking out their windows. So suddenly you have this grand kind of urban pageant occurring around this rather mundane uh, event. There again, she is somebody who we don't know who she actually was.
I would say that one of the characteristics that many of these photographs share, or indeed all of them share, is that while they're not, for the most part, uh, depicting the, the city's built environment, the, the uh, photo shoot of the bra model being an exception, but for the most part, they're just of the people. They're very much about New York because it's this kind of colorful character that gives the city much of its uh, feeling. And that, I would say, running throughout the photographs is really a love of New York. Even in the darker photographs, there is a sense of the city as just this very exciting place to be. And it's, in a certain sense, a valentine to New York. We know what happened to folks like Rocky Graziano and Gloria Vanderbilt, but I'm sure just staring at some of these photos really leaves you the questions of whatever happened to this person. Yes, well, whatever happened to Cuda Box is a question that we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of other people, or the anonymous bra model. One of the showgirl shoots that Kubrick does is a woman named Rosemary Williams, and it's an enormous shoot. There are hundreds of photographs following the, a day in the life of the aspiring showgirl. We have no idea whatever happened to her. The photographs end in 1961, and it's in the 1960s that Andy Warhol makes the famous comment, in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And you have very much a sense of the fleetingness of fame. Let me ask you this, and I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had to put this exhibit to music, what would you select? You know, there's the newsreel sound uh, that you'll hear of that era. You could also put it to the, to the score, I don't know who wrote it, of the movie The Sweet Smell of Success. It's that kind of Elmer Bernstein, New York story, sort of brassy, a little bit maybe too loud and aggressive, but that would be probably the soundtrack. And I have two very different answers. One is New York, New York, which is an, an anthem, and there is a quality of, um, of a real upbeat spirit, and, and also it's a, a kind of tribute to survival, which I think these photographs also talk about. Um, and the other is, uh, wasn't Moon River used in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's? Yeah. And it's this real melancholy, so that's sort of the reverse of New York, New York. And that, I think, would also make a, a, uh, an apt background for this. Tom, Donald, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Donald Albrecht and Thomas Mellons are the curators of Willing to be Lucky at the Museum of the City of New York. The exhibition runs through January 3rd. Our last museum trip takes us up to the Bronx and to the newly renovated Bronx Museum of the Arts. Their first major exhibition highlights work from late 60s Brazil. Tropicalia is widely known for the music it inspired, but the Bronx Museum exhibit shows the movement was also comprised of art, fashion, and film, and plenty of interactive pieces. The museum's education director gave us a tour of the works on display. My name is Sergio Bassa, and I am the director of education uh, here at the Bronx Museum. We are in the new lobby of uh, the new building. As you see, it's a, it's a brand new building. We open uh, early in October. Right now, we have this wonderful exhibition called Tropicalia, a revolution in Brazilian culture. The idea of this exhibition is uh, to take a look in the late 1960s in Brazil and the early 1970s. Uh, it's an era that there was this huge uh, sort of uh, explosion of creativity and, uh, and invention. We are going now to um, 
the main gallery in the new building. And here we basically have documentation. Uh, it's kind of a timeline of the period. And you have that uh, display uh, there in which you see a lot of magazines and books and uh, records and uh, all these sort of cultural artifacts from, from there. At the far end of the gallery, you have a display of fashion. And although that is not from one specific fashion designer, uh, the idea uh, of the curator was to show that Tropicalia was sort of an idea that kind of spilled to, you know, to many other areas, not just music and the visual arts, but uh, fashion and architecture and so forth. Okay, now we are getting in Gallery 1 in the old building, and uh, this whole gallery is very much dedicated to the work of one artist, Elio Sica. We have here two historical installations combined. This one is called Tropicalia, which is the installation that gives the name to the exhibition, and also it has a very interesting um, story behind it. It became the name of the music movement, Tropicalia, and it was kind of a coincidence. Uh, Oitisica was an artist working you know, in the visual arts, and Caetano Veloso, he was beginning to create his own uh, blend of music, and he had composed a song, and he had a different title uh, for it. And uh, someone um, went to see an exhibition and saw this installation by Elio Chisica called Tropicalia, and this friend came to Caetano and said, oh, uh, you have to see this work, it has so much to do with your music, and I think you should name your song Tropicalia. And Caetano, at first, he had a little bit of a reaction to it, but at the end, he decided to embrace it, and he named the song Tropicalia, and that became sort of an icon of uh, Brazilian music from the era, and also named the whole movement. As you can see here, we have plants, we have sand, and we have these two beautiful parrots, uh, live parrots. Uh, and the idea of Oitisica here is to recreate uh, an environment in Brazil that kind of reminds the slums in Rio. But as you see, he sees slums in a very idealized way. In a sense, this uh, kind of environment for him is, is paradise. The main thing about this work is that it's very uh, interactive. Uh, the viewers are invited to take their shoes and you know, go inside and walk and explore and you know, spend as much time as they want. This gallery here, actually, um, it's my preferred gallery in the, in, in the whole exhibition. So in this vitrine here, we actually have poetry um, from Brazil, from there, and this is all work by one poet. His name is Augusto de Campos, and he's very um, known um, internationally as one of the founders of Concrete Poetry, which is this sort of very visual uh, take on language. As you can see here, it doesn't look like the usual book of poetry. It's uh, loose pages that the viewer can manipulate and can read in different order and combine with other things. Oh, 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 
The musicians and the visual artists from the late 60s were really looking back at the 50s and looking at uh, the concrete poets, uh, people like Augusto de Campos and Desi Pignatari. And uh, a good example is the song Bate Macumba by Gilberto Gil, in which he just repeats on and on the same phrase, and he, he begins to cut the phrase in different points, and then he begins to add again. So it's like this playfulness with text. Gilberto Gil's music, the lyrics doesn't have a lot of meaning. It's, uh, it's kind of a data uh, statement. But the construction of the lyrics, it's pretty much adapted to concrete poetry. Here you have some of the most important works in, in this exhibition. These are works by uh, Ligia Clark. She's, she's very interested in the participation of the viewer. So here in this table, for example, you have a series of gloves with different textures, and the idea is that the viewer will um, put on these gloves and will kind of uh, experience with the uh, uh, different objects, in the case, balls of uh, uh, different diameters. This idea of sensation is very important to her, and this idea of uh, getting the viewer connected to his or her own body. This has been a great opportunity for uh, people interested in, in, in this kind of art to come and see uh, you know, these works for the first time. That's the role of museums, to offer the proof and, uh, and make people sort of go back in the past and, and, and look at how uh, different people at different time kind of uh, uh, dealt with the contradiction and, uh, uh, and complexity. That's Sergio Bessa, Education Director at the Bronx Museum of the Arts. The Tropicalia exhibit runs through January 28th. Well, that concludes our look at some of the current exhibits found in New York's museums. We hope you've been inspired. Of course, there are tons more interesting museums to visit, so get out there and explore. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Jody Abergan. Remember, you can find podcasts, archive shows, and the Cityscape Bulletin Board at WFUV.org. Thanks for joining us, and have a great weekend. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The Museum of American Financial History is in the old Standard Oil Building, where John D. Rockefeller forged his reputation as a captain of industry. And it's one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. Info at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.